In the virtual world, we're like this little Donald Trump where we get whatever we want whenever we want it, but then we're, we're actually engaged in the real world or these little managers where we're just, how we talk is usually a reflection of our virtual behavioral activities. Consciousness, the notion of the self, personality structure, transactional analysis, symbiosis, Zen Buddhism, teacher-student, relationships, training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space, the virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Andrew Archer. In this episode, I want to continue talking about where we left off in terms of the part of the personality that craves or wants uh, for itself. Uh, transactional analysis refers to this as the adapted child ego state, but it's essentially our psychology, our psychological processes, how we've adapted based on our conditioning from when we were little. So it's a psycho part. And what I talked about before was Essentially, we have this little Donald Trump in our head. And what Trump represents is, of course, self-promotion and egotism or self-centeredness. And when you think about Trump, he's always uh, going after it, you know, playing the game, trying to win, sort of flex his muscles. Uh, and so he really represents competition. And from a Buddhist perspective, you know, we're all interdependent. There really isn't this idea of scarcity. There's not enough. So we need to hoard and have more for ourselves. Uh, we're all interrelated, interdependent. Uh, so when you're in a social situation, you know, to, to provide some security, we often want to one-up the other person or be in a superior position or likewise uh, be in a position of inferiority because at least then we know our quote-unquote place. And so the issue with this part of us that, that craves uh, is we tend to play what transactional analysis calls games. Uh, and there's something that was developed by uh, Karpman in the 1960s called the Drama Triangle, which I've sort of adapted... Uh, I'll call the, the karma triangle. Karma literally means drama. It's uh, sort of the activity that you produce, the behaviors, the, the uh, possessions, the preferences. Uh, they cultivate more of that type of activity. It's karmic activity. Stems from you know our cravings, our desires. And how that works interpersonally is that we typically orient towards a specific role. And in the drama triangle, they refer to it as the, the persecutor, the rescuer, and the victim. Claude Steiner calls this just the rescue game or the, the drama triangle. 
And Trump is the classic persecutor. Uh, he walks into a room and either explicitly or implicitly says, this is reality. How I'm experiencing things and seeing things is reality itself. And we talked about in the last uh, episode that this authoritarian character, which he represents, uh, at least how he presents himself, it looks like he has no conscience. And he his reality is what he gets for himself. And so that's this psycho part, as you can think of the... Uh, Trump, the persecutor who's trying to win, and if he doesn't get what he wants, he's going to call you names, he's going to shoot you down, uh, but then he's going to play victim at times and say, no, it's China, it's Russia, it's immigrants, uh, you know, this xenophobic kind of rhetoric. So that's one part of the drama triangle, and you can think of it being fueled by greed, uh, which has become so naturalized in our culture. So you have the persecutor on the left side of the triangle, and on the right is the the rescuer. And so this is what I kind of want to talk about uh, today, is if you think about the rescuer role, it's, it's akin to the kind of stereotypical tireless mother in the family system, in the patriarchal family system, where the mom does all the domestic labor, takes care of the kids, you know, the soccer schedule, the groceries, the cooking, cleaning, etc., is that the, the rescuer thinks of themselves last, so if Trump is all about his ego, self-centeredness, the rescuer is this selfless um, individual, but it's to an extreme. They're ignorant in the sense that they don't actually take care of themselves. They stretch themselves too thin. You know, eventually they throw up their hands and say, I never have any time for myself. This represents the the rescue role because the main function is just to manage things to manage the system uh, so an example is you know kind of the enabler in a quote-unquote alcoholic family is is one partner just manages all the responsibilities and duties and the other one goes to the bar all night so the rescuer their function is to to manage the situation that means to look outward in an analytical way. So they're always analyzing who needs to be helped, who needs to be rescued and saved, and they're watching out for these bad guys uh, like Trump that are doing this uh, persecuting. So how I would tie this in to our kind of present reality is that we're, most of us are operating from this position of uh, the rescuer or like a manager. And by that I mean we're excluding the child ego state, the part of the personality that's about play, it's about joy, creativity, spontaneity, you know, letting go of that, uh, that Google Calendar sort of template for the day where everything is managed and we're just going, you know, in half hour increments of each thing to the next. It's basically computer mediated through notifications and reminders, you know, we're just clicking buttons, that sort of thing, is that in a way... This virtual world system is conditioning us to just manage the system through data. And what I think is happening is, be, is it's affecting the psyche um, like any culture does. It creates an idea about the self and then it, uh, it affects us. And what most of us are doing is walking around pretending like we're sober and rational, even though we feel insane most of the time. And so we're, we're using a lot of energy to suppress or exclude the child ego state uh, when that doesn't work 
it sort of comes out. We describe that as anxiety or panic attacks when actually it's just energy. The child ego state is most of the energy in the personality. And what we're doing is we're suppressing it. Uh, and then we get done with work at about eight o'clock at night. Then we go on TikTok, we scroll through Twitter, YouTube uh, as our form of play. But again, what is what's happening that we've already talked a little bit about is that all of that scrolling, all of those maneuvers we're doing in the virtual world is being monetized. Uh, the data is being sold to third-party companies in order to predict what our next move is. And the the best prediction is the outcome itself. So if that, if that content and data can be manipulated in ways to... Um, sell us things, then then that's, of course, what the, the function is always going to do. I'll just give an example is, you know, recently looking at a, a house to buy, talking with the real estate agent about how the windows were dated and would need to be repaired. Uh, I get, you know, to my office afterwards, and I have an email in my inbox about buying new windows and insulation for homes. So, you know, we all know this, that these devices are constantly listening for what our desires are, what our wants are, and they're trying to predict that based on analysis of who we are across the network, meaning people that are like us, the, the algorithms predict what the behavior is going to be. So as we further embed ourselves in this system, like I talked about the character May from the novel The Circle, as we continue to just manage data and manage our own metrics within the systems, you know, our likes, our subscribers, our followers, et cetera, that each reinforces uh, the other. There's a psychotherapy approach called internal family systems therapy, and it refers to the psyche as multiple or plural in a similar way that transactional analysis does. It has self with a capital S and then parts. And the parts, which are just like ego states, are firefighters, managers, and exiles. And without going into it too deeply, there's this manager part that I think really matches on with this rescuer role, this kind of selflessness to a degree that um, in, in Buddhism would really refer to the poison of hatred or ill will. Because there's something about yourself that you don't like, you try and avoid looking at that and look outward, look to try and rescue and help other people so you don't have to face uh, yourself in a way. In internal family systems therapy, this manager part is preemptive. So it suppresses emotions, it tries to predict the future and avoid any emotional dysregulation. So you stay very rational, very orderly, uh, you do things in a methodical, organized manager. I mean, I just spoke with a 20-something uh, this morning in, in psychotherapy, and they said, I have terrible OCD, which really just meant that she tries to stay in control at all times. And any situation where she doesn't know, quote-unquote, know what's going to happen gives her anxiety. She gets triggered. So she walks into her house, and her younger brother has trashed the place. Uh, and she doesn't know what to do with herself because she's furious uh, with him and she wants to just go OCD and clean the whole place. But really, she's upset because she doesn't know how to uh, regulate herself when she gets into that child ego state where all the emotion is happening 
Uh, and so she plays different games, which um, which we can talk about as we go. But it's essentially karmic activity. She holds feelings, mostly, you know, anger and disgust and powerlessness, which we're not really trained very well in terms of dealing with. Um, but my point is here is that we're with all of this knowing, you know, the weather app tells you what the weather's going to be like. Your calendar tells you what you're going to do in the day. Uh, all these different applications for knowledge, information about your car, your home, etc. cetera. Uh, it doesn't promote security and stability. That's the, that's the mirage, that if we just know all the data, everything will be fine. That's parent ego state. That's adult ego state kind of functioning. But connection with people, real world connection with people happens from not knowing what's going to happen. That's where intimacy is promoted. That's how you connect is through the child ego state. You use your imagination. You talk about shared experiences and, and what your vulnerabilities are and your desires and your ideas about yourself. You know, identity construction is all the child ego state. But most of us, I think, based on the economic conditions, are preemptively avoiding emotions because all we do uh, is data input. Whether we're aware of it or not aware of it, everything is tracked and managed for us. And we think that that's going to give us some freedom and and leisure time. But actually, it's just a system uh, that turns back around and manipulates us into uh, you know, voluntarily giving away more of ourselves, more of our um, data. So this, this manager role uh, is very clear in in the novel, The Memory Police. If I can just say a couple words about it, I mean, I think, think this novel really represents uh, the kind of hyper-individualism that the Western culture is so uh, indoctrinated into. You know, this idea that you're this rational, self-determined actor uh, and everything you do is, is by yourself and alone, uh, that, but that you're in competition with everyone else. So... The Memory Police is a Japanese novel. Uh, it was just translated to, and published in English a couple years ago. The book takes place on this unnamed island. It's obviously a Japanese culture, but the the main character, the protagonist, is a, a female, young, 20-something. And her parents are both deceased, and when she was a young girl, her mom was taken away by the Memory Police. Uh, this is sort of a totalitarian regime. It's not really clear in the novel what's happening, but the memory police enforce what are called the disappearances. So on this island, uh, there are the laws of the island, which means that periodically the people wake up in the morning and something like roses have disappeared. There's no more roses. Even the concept of roses uh, disappears or calendars, or eventually the seasons disappear, books, novels, etc. And so when the disappearance happens, the people wake up and they can sense something has happened. And the dramatics of it are, in the end, different parts of their body um, disappear. So when this happens, uh, everyone on the island goes out and they, they dispense the item into the sea, or they, they gather... Uh, in mass and make these giant fires so they burn the items extinguish the items that way and if you hold on to any of the items or you try and um, keep it a secret that you have them uh, 
the memory police come and they take the items or they take you away. The other aspect of it is that the um, anyone that remembers, that can remember the disappearances, is disappeared themselves by the memory police. So that's what happens in this family is the mother is taken away by the memory police. So you have this main character, this female 20-something. She has has one friend who's an older gentleman, a mechanic, uh, and she's a writer, and she's writing uh, novels. And so she has an editor named R. And so it's it's interesting just at, at the, the face value of it, which is uh, these characters don't really have names. And I think what's what's happening that's ironic is the even though our culture is all about identity and identity politics and this sort of individualism, this kind of rugged individualism, is that we're actually losing our sense of who we are. And I think that's what kind of the book points to. And the other uh, cultural piece is that uh, there's this real hyperconformity and apathy. So when these disappearances happen, everyone just says, well, there goes books or there goes roses or whatever, and they dispense of them. And they say, well, we'll get by without them. And it, it feels like what's happening in our, our present moment where another person gets shot by the police or we find out that Jeff Bezos doesn't pay any taxes or the malicious things that Facebook is doing is we just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, you know, let's just go on uh, with our day. And in the book, The Memory Place, there's never an idea of doing some sort of collective action. What, what ends up happening is a very individualistic response. So the main character learns that her editor can remember the disappearances. And so she decides to hide him in her house to protect him. And in a way, she actually does exactly what the memory police are doing, which is to categorize all these items and to disappear them from the item and basically imprison anybody that can remember. Even though she's protecting her editor, he's essentially incarcerated in her, in her home. He's, he has a, a baby in the book uh, and a wife, and he's you know not able to be in contact with her. So it's kind of like this, this virtual world uh, where it seems like a world where you can explore and express ourselves. And it's really we're creating these digital uh, prisons uh, for ourselves. And I think that's what that's the the kind of metaphor here in the memory police is that these disappearances amount to um, conceptualizing and then organizing and kind of digitalizing all of these things that make up the island. Uh, roses, books, calendars, etc., and uh, giving away all of that stuff, all of that power to authority, meaning the laws of the island, and then the memory police are these managers. And, and so that's the kind of the point of this is that the memory police, uh, they have no uh, personality. It's what Durkheim would call an impersonality, is that their their identity is just based on their role of being these agents uh, that enforce the disappearances. So they go around with these big trench coats and they have weapons, but they don't say anything. They don't express any emotion. They're sort of cold. And what they're doing is they're managing the data of the system. They're enforcing these disappearances. In a way, I think that's what we're doing in the virtual world because 
we're documenting everything we're doing in a digital way. Taking picture of our lunch is a stupid example, but is is the case is that we're surveilling all the people around us. It doesn't look like that because with our sore necks looking down at our phone, we just think uh, we're participating in a social network, uh, this kind of experiment. But what we're doing is actually digitalizing all of human experience. I mean, 98% of human history is in a digital form now, thanks to companies like Google. And that's in a matter of decades. I mean, at the at 2000, I think it was, you know, 10% or something of human history. This was a digital um, kind of record. So I think what we're doing, uh, you know, we're not conscious of this, is that we're enforcing these these rules, uh, this system. Like, think of uh, another kind of silly example is like, there was a moment, probably around 2011 or something, where I realized, oh, there's this new thing on Facebook where if it's your birthday and people say happy birthday to you, that then you have to create a separate post acknowledging uh, that it's your birthday and thank everyone that wished you a happy birthday. And that like seemed to have sprung up organically out of nowhere. Uh, but it's it's just a representation of how we just conform to these parameters of engaging and relating to people in a way like the the citizens of the island in the memory police where they just you just go out and participate and you just burn all the books or you burn all the calendars or you throw all the roses out into the sea etc is that we don't understand how this programming is affecting us psychologically sociologically uh, with people but because we're all going so insane and in, in what Piketty calls hypercapitalism that we're living in uh, you know, Berardi says we're, you know, we're living in the the dead dog sort of corpse of capitalism right now. Is it's making everybody insane, and but we're walking around trying to pretend like we're not crazy, and that's a lot of energy. You know, from a psychotherapy perspective, it's a lot of energy to try and suppress um, aspects of the personality structure. Transactional analysis just calls it exclusion. But it's this data-driven kind of universe that we're living in that we begin to, of course, reflect uh, the culture that we're so embedded in. And and it amounts to like the memory police going around trying to figure out who's hiding the items and who knows how to remember history. You know, it's both like how we're managing our own data, managing ourselves, but also how the system works in terms of the Google, Facebook, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, these companies, they're managing the frames of reference, how we experience things, how we are in this symbiotic relationship as a user with the virtual world. You know, you basically can pay your way to the top of Google searches, and that's how they've made uh, so much money. So it's it's not democratic like the vision of the internet uh, was. So what am I trying to say with this? I'm trying to, you know, show a kind of inversion between in the virtual world, we're like this little Donald Trump, where we get whatever we want whenever we want it, but then we're we're actually engaged in the real world 
or these little managers where we're just how we talk is usually a reflection of our virtual behavioral activity. So we'll say, oh, I was reading this article, I uh, saw somewhere, I don't know where, you know, it's just kind of in the ether, or I saw this post, or there's this meme. And so what that amounts to is actually our self with a capital S is disappearing itself. The conclusion of the memory book, like I alluded to, first they lose one of their arms, uh, then one of their legs disappears. Eventually the whole body disappears. So as we're living within this electric stimulation, you know, this hyper connectivity, the body itself is atrophying because eventually if if the technologies can do all of the actual work what we don't really the system itself doesn't need our bodies it just needs our cognition our our thinking and our wants maybe that's too uh dystopian but it's uh it's a podcast episode so who cares but the social body at the very least is atrophying uh, we're coming more apathetic. Nobody has any new ideas. Why? Because the new ideas, the creativity comes from the child ego state. And if we're not connecting or operating from that part that's very good at imagining with other people, then we're just going to scroll and we're going to manage our own data and manage our persona online in a way that's like a, our own personal public relations campaign where we want to we don't want to offend people and we want to be sort of apolitical or we got to be on the right side or the left side of the political spectrum and lock us into that binary worldview that the system um, promotes and so if my psychotherapy practice is any indication of what's happening especially with this next generation it's that people are becoming more anxious more self-critical. They don't have uh, the energy really to make it through the day. They don't have the energy to engage with people and to play and to relax. I mean, suicide rates are going up. Um, drug and alcohol issues are going up. All of these things feel like have to be somewhat um, related because this technology is so new and it's a new social experiment that little children are engaged in these platforms and activities when certainly their brain is still developing and being created. So what maybe I'll talk about next is we have basically these two different personalities in terms of the authoritarian character, the little Donald Trump in our head that's basically a psycho, right? That all of us have this psycho part that craves and wants for itself. And on the other side is how we're relating interpersonally is this manager. We don't want to say the wrong thing. We're people-pleasing. We're being more self-effacing. In the real world, we're not saying all the crazy things that are coming up in our minds and how crazy we feel like we're being. Uh, and that this is driven by karma, greed, hatred, ill will. The other um, element of karma or these three poisons in Buddhism is delusion. And that completes the, uh, the drama triangle in terms of the persecutor, rescuer, and victim is the other role. And from these role positions is how we play psychological games, which advance the life script. So what I want to talk about 
um, in the next podcast is this idea of um, life script that essentially is when you're a little kid, for most of us, we make a decision about how we're going to live our life. And that's, that's inferred based on a lot of things that happened right around the time of our birth, but even before in terms of our grandparents' lives, what they did, what were the circumstances around our births, were our parents married or separated, was it an accident, et cetera. There's a bunch of information that um, can be gathered even before the birth itself that can uh, be part of this structure of the script. And the easiest example for me to talk about it is from the film The Truman Show, which I'll talk about. So if you haven't watched that movie, please do. It's very good, but it illustrates a lot of these concepts that I'm talking about and we'll get into next time. Thanks again for listening. I'm Andrew Archer, the Subversive Therapist.